Daniel chapter 1, I'm, this is the second part of two messages. It's uh, what is your end game, but last Sunday morning we talked to the ladies, and then last, uh, this morning we talked to the men. Last Sunday night we talked to the young adults, and then tonight we're going to finish up talking to the young adults. So second part of that young adult part, portion, we're looking at a man named Daniel. The book of Daniel is full of amazing things. It's, it's a fantastic book. Uh, I mean, there's lion's dens and fiery furnaces and huge statues and dreams and prophecies. It's, there's all kinds of great stuff in the book of Daniel. But I think one of the greatest messages that comes through in the book of Daniel, one of the key things in the whole entire book, is how a young adult, how a young man remained steadfast in an evil world. Babylon is the personification of evil. In the Bible, when, we're, when God's going to talk about evil, even in Revelation, he, if he wants to personify what, what evil is, he uses the term Babylon. Babylon it's, it's represents the evil system of the world, everything about the world. But Daniel... In, that, in the midst of Babylon itself, stands strong and even thrives in that in the most wicked environment probably known to man. And this is what made him a hero, and it's what made him a man with a true endgame. This guy had the, the real endgame. So last Sunday night, we gave the first few I, I, principles and lessons from his life, and let's just do a quick review on that. Number one was... Uh, learning from Daniel is to develop a deep understanding of the sovereignty of God. If we're going to be a young adult, a young person who's, who, uh, who serves the Lord and has the right kind of end game, if I'm going to be the person that, uh, a person you want to marry, the kind of person that, uh, that God would use in their life, one of, one of the things I think we see in Daniel's life is that he developed a deep understanding of the sovereignty of God. Daniel knew that everything that happened to him was allowed by God's hand. He didn't put himself in Babylon. He was dragged to Babylon. He had done everything right, and yet he, was, he found himself there, but he knew God was behind it, and you see that in Daniel chapter 1. Number two, we talked about Daniel and how he developed the skills and abilities that were already in him, and that's what we should do, develop the skills and abilities that are already in us. He was a young man who worked really hard, and you can tell that because he was chosen because of his education, because he had worked hard, obviously, at his education, his schooling, to become a standout worker in the field that he was in. And I, if, if there's one thing a young adult and a teenager, anybody like that should work very hard at, it's is their schooling, their education, the things that will help them stand out as a worker in their field, whatever it may be. There's nothing wrong with ambition as long as it's tied to our heart with the Lord. But that D Daniel was an excellent worker. And then number three, we talked about Daniel, how he developed a resistance to the world's pressures, and that's what we ought to do. And this is, these are principles for all of us. Develop a resistance to the world's pressures. The king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, put him on a three-year program, a three-year program to brainwash him. That's what Babylon would do. They would go in, take, your, take you, take your best and brightest, and they would take those guys and brainwash them into the Babylonian way of thinking. And they tried to rid you of everything that you ever knew in your culture. And I just want to remind us today that nothing, 
they learn today in public schools out in America compares to the vile and spiritualistic and demonic teaching of the Babylonians. There's just nothing that can, nothing compared to what they learn here. He also, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar changed Daniel's name to confuse Daniel's identity and uh, even gave him a female name. Uh, Interesting having to do with gender issues. But Daniel was not swayed by the world's pressures. Daniel was not swayed by those pressures. He just kept going. In fact, tonight we're going to look at the final three principles that I see in chapter one here of Daniel from this mighty young adult. And this is where we pick up the story right here is Daniel starting that three-year brainwashing program, okay? So verse number eight, that's where we left off. Daniel one, verse eight. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. So here's the first principle I see here from this verse, and that is to, that we ought to develop wise biblical guardrails. Develop biblical guardrails. Develop wise biblical guardrails in our lives. Now, what is a guardrail? You know, a guardrail, as you're driving down the road, a guardrail along a, they put a guardrail along a treacherous part of the road uh, because the whole point is to keep you from going off the edge. I always think of guardrails when we go to the men's retreat and go to, uh, up, up to the mountains there, and uh, because I, there's a lot of guardrails along those uh, hairy cliffs, and I always feel safer with those guardrails. In fact, in, moments, in those moments, I love the guardrails. But we need, to have a, we need to have personal guardrails, guardrails in our life that keep us from going off the edge into sin. The terminology that we use a lot in, in the Christian world is a conviction. A conviction, which is a decision that's a, made in the heart. It's a heart-based decision that's based on a biblical principle. So we see God lays out a principle, and so then we make a heart decision based on that principle. And then based on that conviction, then, we will, we will add a discipline to our life, or the words we like to use is a standard so I might have put a standard in my life. So a standard is a practical discipline that's going to keep me from breaking my conviction. So here's what Daniel did in this verse. Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. So why is Daniel doing this? Well, it's a heart issue. He says for, possibly it's because There are some dietary laws he's trying to follow. Leviticus chapter 11 talks about some of that. Or maybe it's the the fact that the meat that was given to him in Babylon would have been offered to idols. And so he didn't want to defile himself by taking meat that was offered to idols. Or maybe he just felt that eating that meat would have been equal to fellowshipping with the whole Babylonian system and by taking part in that. But whatever the exact reasoning for him uh, turning away this meat and this drink is because it was a heart decision. He purposed in his heart. It was a decision that he made deep inside of his heart, meaning this indicates that it was a spiritual decision that he made. It was not just about food. This is a spiritual decision he was making 
about this. So there was a principle somehow from God that he was seeing that he wanted to follow. So he then made, he purposed in his heart, and that's where that conviction is. He had that conviction toward that deep in his heart based on that principle that, that he saw. I will not defile myself. That's the conviction in my heart. And then he set a standard to make sure that he didn't do that by not eating the meat or the drink. That was a standard he put in his life. One thing, that was the guardrail, if you will. One thing that that many might have accused Daniel, though, if you think about it uh, at this moment, back then, they might have said, Daniel, you are making a big deal over a little thing. Daniel, this is just food. Suck it up, eat your food, and get on with life. Daniel, why are you bringing religion into this? Just get on with it. But Daniel realized that his relationship with God and these principles and these convictions that he had were something that were special to him deep in his heart, and his relationship with God touched every area of his life. Now, now think about some of the reasons this, this would have been a very tough choice for him to make. Here's just some of them. Uh, first of all, the king is the one who set the meat out and, and the drink. So the king ordered the menu. Reju- rejecting the menu is like rejecting the king. Another reason is that if you refuse the food, people around might have just branded you as uncooperative. You're just one of those uncooperative types, aren't you? And, and then there's the, the issue of an actual real threat of punishment. If he brings this up, he could be punished. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was not a, a gentle king. He was known for his volatile um, anger and his crazy things that he would do to people. And then also the, the food itself. The, another reason it might have been hard for him is the food itself. The food itself was probably pretty good. It was probably pretty attractive, something he might want. But he had made a decision in his heart. Also, the other reason this could have been hard. He's way away from his family. Again, he's, this has been a cha- challenge for him. He's, uh, he's, he's not, his parents aren't there watching him and saying, hey, what are you eating? I thought we made a decision. Not, no, nobody was there. Nobody would have noticed. He could have just done it, and nobody would have known the difference. But he purposed in his heart. There was something deepened down inside of his heart. Also, it was easy to think, maybe in this moment, that God had let him down. Hey, God, you led me here. You brought me here. I've always done what's right, but now I'm in this place, and you, let, you just let all this happen. So there was a lot of things going against him, but still, this man had this strength of character. He had something deep inside of him. He purposed deep in his heart. This is my biblical guardrail. This is the guardrail that I'm putting into my life. And I don't really care what anybody says. But as difficult as it was, this man still made that conviction. And by the way, so if we're talking about that and we're, we're wanting to add standards, guidelines, guardrails to our life, and uh, let's think about it. Why is it so wise? The reason guardrails are so wise and the reason standards and convictions and those things are so wise is because it's a decision that's made ahead of time. It, the choice is made before decision time ever comes. For example, uh, we talk a lot about here, and I know uh, my dad preaching will talk about debt and having a conviction about debt. This is, and I, I will say, is uh, for my wife and I, we adopted that as a conviction. There's a biblical principle for doing so, but we said, okay, there's the biblical principle. Now, are our are our hearts going to be into this thing? Are we going to latch onto it with a conviction in our hearts and make it part of us? 
Um, and now as we look back, as we made that decision, it's probably been one of the biggest decisions and best decisions we have ever made. Um, and then we set standards, and the standard to keep that conviction was that we're just not going to buy things in debt. And we, we've talked about this many times, what a powerful tool for decision-making this has been for us. It's simple. It's made decisions so easy and choices so easy. We walk through the store, and we really want something, but it doesn't fit in the budget. The only way to get that thing would be to go on credit and get it. And so the decision has already been made. It was made a long time ago. And so that made it really easy. Uh, I love that. And, and this is the one of the way we have purposed in our hearts not to defile ourselves. And it has probably saved us from more harm than we can even imagine. It's probably saved us from more harm than we can even imagine. And we have another smaller one. Uh, and this one we also we adopted from uh, others. And that is on, on Saturday nights in our home in the Pollock house, it's, it's, we're going to turn off anything that's not Christian. We're not going to watch movies, things like that that aren't Christian. We're just going to kind of begin to prepare our hearts for the next day, thinking that this is God's day coming up. And so let's prepare ourselves for that. Again, this is a standard that we have set uh, at, because we have a conviction based on a principle based on a biblical principle, to have our hearts prepared. But it wouldn't be right for me to impose my standard on anyone else because it's not a direct biblical command. I'm not going to command anybody. I'm not going to tell you you're a bad Christian if you don't do what I do on Saturday nights. That's, up to, that's between you and God. I, well, you do what you think you need to do. But the point is, I'm going to have some standards. I'm going to have some convictions. You're going to have some also. But we better have those, and we better have them deep in our heart, and we better just make those things as tough and as, as strong as we can. But the point is here, we need to make some. We need to have some. We need to have some guardrails. What are yours? Some of them you'll inherit from others. You'll, you'll say, I like that. I like that. I like that. And then others you'll come up with on your own. I hope you do. Every part of our life should be evaluated to see if we need to set standards, Entertainment, music, friends, the opposite sex, places we go, websites, social media, purchases, on and on and on the list goes. We should evaluate, and we should say, God, what's the biblical principle that you want me to follow? What is the conviction in my heart that you want me to set my heart, purpose in my heart not to defile myself, and then how am I going to keep that? What's the standard? What's, what am I going to put in my life to make sure that I keep that? conviction that you've placed in my heart. It helps me make the decision ahead of time. You know the opposite of Daniel in this, in the Bible? There's a man who's the opposite, polar opposite in this area. His name was Lot. Remember Lot? He chose no guardrails at all. I don't need guardrails. I'm going to choose to live right in Sodom. No big deal. I can handle it. I'll be right there, and I don't need to have any guardrails in my life. He chose to live close to the sin, and eventually he was drawn right in. Remember, remember 2 Peter chapter 2? And delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man, dwelling among them and seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with, his, or, uh, with their unlawful deeds. He was dwelling in them, seeing it and hearing it, 
And the things that he saw and the things that he heard just kept coming in and coming in and coming in, and they vexed his righteous soul. This is why we put the guardrails up. We put the guardrails way over here. So that that thing, I can't see it and I can't hear it to help keep my righteous soul from being vexed. He had no standards, no, nothing to protect him. So here's the question. What are you doing to keep yourself? What have you purposed in your heart? I will not defile myself. This is my purpose in my heart. I'm not going to defile myself with this. I'm not going to defile myself with this. These are, the, these are the kind of standards and the kind of conviction. We have to do something. As a young adult, these are vital. But as soon as you make those standards, let me just say something before we move on. As soon as you make those, prepare to be tested. Prepare to be tested. It's coming after you. As soon as you purpose in your heart to defy, not to defile yourself, here comes the devil. You better be strong. I like what Charles Spurgeon said. Listen to this. Be ready for a bad name. Be willing to be called a bigot. Be prepared for the loss of friendships. Be prepared for anything, so long as you can stand fast by him who bought you with his precious blood. He goes on, I think that a Christian man should be willing to be tried. He should be pleased to let his religion be put to the test. There, says he, hammer if you like. Do, and then he says to us, do you want to be carried to heaven on a feather bed? Do you want to be carried to heaven on a feather bed? Do you want always to be protected from everybody's sneer and frown and go to heaven as if you were riding on the procession on the Lord Mayor's Day? Uh, this is, uh, this is qu- quite a quote from Charles Spurgeon, but he's, he's saying the question, he's giving us the question, do you want to be carried to heaven on a feather bed? Do you think this is supposed to be easy? It, the devil's going to come after you. He's going to come hard, but did you expect this to be all easy? If our master was crucified, should we expect better treatment than he? But here's where things get hairy for Daniel as we go back to his story, thinking of his story. Daniel determines for spiritual reasons not to defile himself with the king's meat and drink. Here's what he has to do, figure out though. How do I make the request to my leadership? How do I do this? Uh, Because these people, the people above him, don't care one bit about Daniel's convictions. They don't care about his spiritual life. And if you're like me, you might struggle with how to best communicate my standards, my convictions, my biblical choices with a clueless world. I have a hard time knowing, how do I phrase this? How do I say this? How do, we, how do I give this? Some of the choices that we choose to make, how do I say this correctly? But Daniel knew how to approach the subject. I think there's a powerful principle here. He leveraged the respect that he had earned through his good behavior. He leveraged that good respect that he earned through his good behavior, and because good behavior always leads to respect. And respect leads to influence, and even love. So look at the next verse, verse 9. Now God, now God had brought Daniel into favor and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs. God had brought Daniel into favor and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs, his boss, basically. Verse 10, and the prince of the eunuchs said unto Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who hath appointed your meat and your drink, For why should he see your face as worse liking than the children which are of your sort? Then shall you make me endanger my head to the king. 
Then said Daniel to Melzar, whom the prince of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, prove thy servants, I beseech thee, ten days, and let, us, let, let them give us pulse to eat and water to drink, or vegetables and water, then let our countenances be looked upon before thee. And the countenance of the, of the children that eat the portion of the king's meat, as thou seest, deal with thy servants. So he consented to them in this matter and proved them ten days. And at the end of ten days, their countenances appeared fairer and fatter in flesh than all the children which did eat the portion of the king's meat. So Daniel made a wise request. He requested that he would be able to do this little test. And it brought him even more respect. Uh, and not only him respect, but it brought his God respect. But notice what took place here. Daniel had to ask that he would not be served defiling food. So he had to somehow go and phrase this to his, his superiors, I don't want defiling food. Basically, he was going to be rebuking the world while trying to gain their respect. He'd ha he, was gonna, he was not going to be able to escape the fact that he was going to have to tell them there's something that's not right about what they're offering him. But I've learned that people actually do respect you more when you make a bold stand. They may not like you for a few minutes, <laughs> but they will respect you. They will. And if you'll stand by that, make that bold stand and stand with it, you get a lot of respect. But I think as believers, we have to learn how to do this graciously. It takes a wise person who can walk that balance. And here's what I think Daniel was able to do, and I think what we should do. And I think all young adults should really try to develop this. Now, this is the next point. Develop a love for people, but not their anti-biblical ideas. Develop a love for people, but not their anti-biblical ideas. Uh, th this is what I see in here. Let me bring this out. One huge lesson in all of our lives is to learn to disagree without being disagreeable. We're going to work and live alongside people who are polar opposites to us. Uh, people that believe some crazy things. Uh, we're gonna, that's going to happen our whole entire life. We're going to be around them. And they're going to believe some horrible things even. Wicked things. But you know what? We can learn to love those people. We can really love those people. And the reason we can love them is because this. God has given every person the freedom of choice. God has given everybody the freedom of choice, but God has not given them the freedom to choose their consequences. So here's what I'm saying by that, saying that. In other words, God will deal with them. God will deal with them for their choices. We're not the judge, we're not the jury, and we're not the executioner. That's not us. That is not our job in any way, shape, or form. And that is not how we should approach the people around us. We're not their judge, we're not the jury, we are not the executioner for their life. It is God. So we can back off a little bit, be a little kinder, and realize we need to love these people. We should try to win them to Christ. But they have to make the choice at the end of the day. And we don't treat them like a lower class citizen because they believe something different than us. We must hate the sin, but not the sinner. We must see them not as the enemy, but as the mission field. You know, Daniel, here's what he did. He approached this situation, and he had come into tender love with the person who was above, above him. There was a tenderness between the two of them. There was something, and th these are wicked people. 
But he, he had this very close relationship with them, and he had earned that. And so he was able then to talk, and by leveraging that respect that he had gained, he was able to give this little test. He said, listen, here's my request. Let's do this little test, this 10-day test. And by giving this, he persuaded his leaders that there is wisdom in the Word of God. By all this coming about, and then they could see, wow, okay, your God, your God's Word works. He didn't beat them over the head with his convictions. He didn't bash them with, because of their political views. He gently proposed a little experiment. That's how he did it. Reminds me of Paul, who was before the Gentile king Agrippa. Remember this? Uh, real quick, let's just look at how Paul just starts his speech to Agrippa. Acts 26, verse 2. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day before thee, touching all things whereof I am accused of the Jews. Verse 3, especially because, look at what he says, especially because, think about how he's acting here with the king, I know thee to be an expert in all customs and questions which are among the Jews. Wherefore I beseech thee to hear me patiently. What a gentle way to word this. Uh, you are an expert, king. You're obviously an expert, and I can see that. Uh, but let me just please have a hearing, and if you would hear me patiently. This just, just how he worded it was so wise, gentle words to a heathen king. But remember then, in verse 28, as you, as after his speech there, what Agrippa said. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. <laughs> Almost. And that is the key, though. I think that word there, persuade, I think we need to be persuasive in how we live. Persuasive, not jerks. <laughs> persuasive. As Pastor Mike says in his Kentucky draw so well, you can't win who you offend. You can't win who you offend. But to do this, we have to develop, to be able to win people but not offend them, we have to have a deep love in our hearts for them. We have to love them. We have to look past the outward, see them as people on their way to hell in need of a lifeline. Look past the foolishness of their choices and the foolishness of the things they say and see the person that God created. There's a little story about William Booth who started the Salvation Army. He was walking in London one day with his son Bramwell who was about 12 or 13 years old. And he took his son and he said, son, we're going to walk right into this place right here. What's this place, Dad? It's called a saloon. And he walked right into a saloon. The place was crowded with people and uh, all kinds of words being spewed out. And some were drunk and they're acting like fools. You could smell alcohol, tobacco, all of that. And then here's what he said. He called his little son Willie. He said, Willie, these are, the, these are our people. These are our people. These are the people I want you to live for and bring to Christ. And years later, Bramwell Booth said, he said, that impression never left me. That impression never left me. That's the kind of heart we need to have. These are our people. These are our people. We gotta love them and bring them to Christ. And that's the end game here. That's his, that really is the end game, is to win them to Christ. Now, Let's look at the conclusion and how this all turned out. Verse 16, Thus Melzar took away the portion of their meat and the wine that they should drink and gave them pulse. As for these four children, 
God gave them knowledge and skill and all learning and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now, at the end of the days, uh, what that means is the three years, after the end of all the days, the three years of brainwashing that the king had, uh, had said he should bring them in, then the prince of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king communed with them, and among them all was found none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore stood they before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding that the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers that were in all his realm. And Daniel continued even unto the first year of King Cyrus. Now, real quickly, King Cyrus comes 70 years after King Nebuchadnezzar, and seven kings later. So in other words, what it's saying by that verse 21 is that Daniel's excellence in his work brought him before seven kings in 70 years, over 70 years. One guy kept going through all those kings in all those years. What an amazing, long-lasting reputation that Daniel had in one kingdom. So here's the final lesson for us, I think, in this chapter, and that is to develop a reputation of excellence and resilience. If there's something is, uh, that's so important for a young adult to have, it is excellence in the things that they do and a resilience. There's no reason for God's people to be lazy or lousy in their work. God's men and women should be, be given the best that they can in their careers, their homes, the ministries, the things that they do. We should be trying to give our best. Notice to Daniel, it says, was 10 times better. That's what the king perceived. This guy is 10, these guys are 10 times better than the rest. What a great thing to aim for. <laughs> 10 times better than my peers out there. I'm going to be 10 times, I'm going to do a 10 times better job at, at here. I'm going to do 10 times better in, in all that I do. My work, 10 times better. My studies in school, 10 times better. I'm going to follow leadership where I'm at, 10 times better. Excellence. That's what excellence is. But it's not just excellence, it's resilience here that we see it with Daniel. Daniel had a spiritual toughness. He had a toughness that could last in a wicked world for 70 years. Some kind of toughness this guy had. Nothing could faze him. Notice that Daniel, he spent 70 years in a demonic world, especially it says among those magicians and astrologers. He was with those guys every single day spouting off their ridiculous nonsense. Listen, you think you deal with, have dealt with a lot of crap in your job. Just think of what Daniel has had to, go, had, had to go through for 70 years. Wicked. And think of the daily attacks that he faced from the, from the people around him. I mean, he was thrown in a lion's den, okay? But in verse 17, we see where he was getting all this power, all this resilience, all this ability to last and be strong in the environment he found himself in. Verse 17, as for these four children, God gave them knowledge and skill in all learning and wisdom. Daniel was able to go this long and this well because God was delivering him a supply of strength. I love the verse in Psalm 119, verse 165. Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Nothing shall offend them. The word offend there means to cause them to stumble. Nothing shall cause them to stumble. Great peace have they 
which love God's word, that are in God's word, that delight in God's word, that are eating up God's word. Great peace have, has those people, and nothing will cause them to stumble. If you're in, your, in the word of God, if it's feeding you, if, if it's deep inside of you, if you're not just reading the Bible, but it's reading you, then you're gonna be able to stand and not be taken down by the devil. I, I've, I've had times where that word offend, I've even told people out in the world, guys, I'll be around, I said, sorry, I don't want to say anything to offend you. I said, you would have to work very hard to offend me. Don't worry. Say what you need to say, but be honest. Let's talk, you know. Um, we're, we're able to withstand anything the world brings at us. We're able to withstand anything the world brings at us when we love the Word of God. The Word is where God supplies us with wisdom and understanding to deal with those things. And we have a confidence and a boldness to be able to step up and say, no, I'm not going that way, but, but let me tell you the truth. People that lay down their Bibles, people that don't look at their Bibles, people that just leave God's Word to the side will soon give in to the world. It's just a matter of time. We all know Christians who are taken captive by the enemy because they left their first love. They left their first love, and we all know it. So be a Daniel. Let's think 70 years ahead. I'm going to need God's word now. I'm going to be, need it feeding me so that I can have resilience to last. Daniel's life is amazing. Daniel's life is amazing. It gives us a snapshot of a single man who lived a long time steadily in the same place, making a huge impact because he had the right end game. It was all about pointing to God. So here's the question tonight. What is your life all about? What's, what's your end game? What kind of life will you live? 70 years from now, what will be said of your life? What will you be thinking about your life? How many regrets will you have? I hope we'll have the kind of life like Daniel. You know, the most sacred symbol, I want to read you this uh, portion of an article here that's just, it's beautiful. The most sacred symbol in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, is a tree a sprawling, shade-bearing, 80-year-old American elm. Tourists drive from miles around to see her. People pose for pictures beneath her. Arborists carefully protect her. She adorns posters and letterheads. Other trees grow larger, fuller, even greener. But not one is equally cherished. The city treasures the tree not because of her appearance, but her endurance. She endured the Oklahoma City bombing. Timothy McVeigh parked his death-laden truck only yards from her. His malice killed 168 people, wounded 850, destroyed the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building, and buried the tree in rubble. No one expected it to survive. No one, in fact, gave any thought to the dusty, branch-stripped tree. But then she began to bud. Sprouts pressed through the damaged bark, Green leaves pushed away, grace soot. Life resurrected from an acre of death. People noticed the tree modeled the resilience the victims desired. So they gave the elm a name. It's the survivor tree. The survivor tree. I think that's a great picture of what a Christian should be. We are going to get blasted. We're gonna get, there's going to be stuff all over us. There's going to be things that we're going to go through that's just crazy, but we've we got to be the kind of people that say, I don't care. My tree is going to bud. 
I'm going to be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that are bringing forth fruit in my season. And, and that's the kind of tree I plan on being. No matter what happens around us, we stand strong for the Lord. So tonight, young adult, teenager, any of us, let's just purpose from this moment on to be a strong, enduring tree that brings forth fruit for God like a Daniel. That's the mark. That's the mark of the person who has the right kind of end game. And these, by the way, are the marks of a person that you want to marry, that you want to marry. So let's pray. Father, we come before you tonight. We're, the, we're people.